0: Hey, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. You know, protecting children from danger is a fundamental instinct for for moms and dads, and it's the most basic role we play as parents. But life is not free of danger, sadly, and tolerating risk for our kids is just a part of the job. Unless, of course, we want to wrap them up in bubble wrap and lock them in the basement. That is something I've considered at times, but I hear doing that has a few downsides as well. Um, So we parents constantly have to make decisions and do risk-benefit analysis to make sure those decisions are the correct ones. But that is really hard to do when it involves your own child, especially in the age of covid So here to talk to me about this is Dr. Lucy McBride. She is a practicing internist in Washington, D.C. with two decades of experience. Dr. McBride is also a Bloomberg New Voices Fellow. I think I messed that up. Bloomberg New Voices Fellow, a healthcare educator, mental health advocate. And she calls herself, I love this, a healthcare disruptor. She's working to increase awareness of the intersection of mental and physical health. Last month, Dr. McBride wrote an excellent article for The Atlantic called Fear of COVID-19 in Kids is Getting Ahead of the Data. It really really stuck with me. It sort of rattled around in my head, and I was thinking about it for weeks after it was published. So I'm just thrilled that Dr. McBride is here to talk to me about it today. Dr. McBride, huge thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I want to get right to your
0: article um, I, I, but, but I want to I sort of make this comment. I think one of the first things that struck me about your piece was it's very clear compassion for the fears that parents have about COVID. Because, you know, I, I'm just kind of bottom line it here. You, you try to reassure these uh, you know, parents who are feeling afraid. But you don't make them feel silly for feeling afraid. You don't make them feel kind of stupid for um, being worried. You know, right off the back, you tell this pretty hilarious story about your son asking to borrow the car keys and your own worries. And I kind of chuckled. And you said, you know, before he left the house, you reminded him to use the windshield wipers and the turn signals. Right. Um, which I I, I do could just I'm right before I I have a 14 year old so I'm right before that stage and I can see myself like you know remember when you turn right turn use the right turn signal so I could yeah, really relate yes. relate to that and I thought it was a great way to open this essay that you wrote so why so just before we get into sort of the meat of the issues why do you think compassion and relatability are important in your writing when you're communicating with parents
1: so the glue of any relationship particularly the patient doctor relationship is compassion and empathy. So I can't make much headway counseling patients to change their behavior or be safer with regards to their health, if I'm shaming, blaming, judging. Yeah. Same thing with teenagers. You know, my kids, my kids love to call me Captain Obvious when I recommend, you know, turn the headlights on when it it's a black dark, right? Like, we all know that this is mom's anxiety just unbridled, right? Right. but they still hear me you know that i i they hear the concern they hear yep. the passion i hope the same applies to patient care right so there's no role for shaming and blaming patients first of all it doesn't move the needle yeah secondly it doesn't breed confidence or trust in anything i'm saying um and thirdly it's just not appropriate yeah so Right now in the country, we are dealing with a whole lot of hot button issues. People are not only trying to make difficult decisions in their everyday lives, but they are confronted with a deluge of mixed messages and, and, and stressful information. So what I'm trying to do in my public facing role is, you know, cut through a lot of the shaming and blaming and false dichotomies. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I do in my office every day—is help people, you know, meet them where they are, understand their unique health issues, risk tolerances, preferences, which may be different from mine, may be different from my patient right before them, and to help guide them to a place where they can be healthy and well, for what whatever that means to them. Mm.
0: Are you accepting new patients? You sound so nice. I want you to be my doctor. Okay,
1: I'm kidding. All right, that's a little. I I, I would like. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I just
0: we can talk about that later. It's a little off topic. Here's
1: the thing. I mean, like with like with anything, like I don't I don't want to. So there's this there's this concept of radical acceptance, right? Like we have right. to radically accept that there are harms everywhere, yeah. that life is not risk free, that there are dangers of driving a car, getting into a pool, you know, being in a sexual relationship. Walking out your front door carries risk. Exactly. So. My job isn't to, you know, sanitize the planet for my patients, but rather to arm people with the tools to manage the inevitable threats that we face every single day. The problem yeah, with COVID was, is that it has shined a light on the fact that we are walking risk factories. We
0: are. And, and what I see increasingly, it's funny, I can tell I'm going off my script now because I want to talk to you about 15, 15 things you just said in that statement. I know. But, but I but I do want to address one thing. I feel like this COVID response um, has increasingly become a zero risk response where we're looking for totally. COVID zero, where we're looking, we're, yes. we're putting all these measures in place that have never been in place for, you know, other infectious diseases, you know, you you get vaccinated for the measles, and you know, the measles is not 100%. The measles shot is not 100% effective. There are people who are still going to get the measles if they come in contact with it, even though they're vaccinated. And yet, we're not having kids master that. I, I'm 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 going a little too far off a tangent here, but my point is, is I want to go back to that zero risk. Um, do you worry about that? About um, I do. Uh, and and how do we pull that back? I mean, I think for instance, you're a a doctor uh, with quite a microphone, you know, publishing in the Atlantic, you know, you can, you can push back on that. But how can the medical community writ large and public health push back on that? Because I'm not sure that they are pushing back on that necessarily.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the voices that are out there that are pushing back on the zero COVID public health posture, don't get, in my opinion, as much airtime as the voices that come from a place of very low risk tolerance vis-a-vis COVID. So let me be clear. COVID is a wretched beast. I've had patients die from COVID. I've had patients in the ICU from COVID-19. I have people with long COVID. I have Mm -hmm. patients who are immune compromised, organ transplant recipients. I'm not blase about COVID whatsoever. My job, however, isn't simply to protect people from COVID-19. It's to protect them from all harms whether it's you know r s v or diabetes obesity binge eating trauma related suffering depression anxiety indeed we are layered complex organisms that are not just about one single right body part or organism, so you're right we we before you're right before the appearance of vaccines in december twenty twenty it was more appropriate, in my opinion, to be afraid, right? We had this tiger in the wild, on the loose. Right. And we didn't know who was going to strike. We didn't know when it was strike. It was invisible and ubiquitous. Once vaccines came on the scene, and once every American over the age of 16 was eligible for vaccines in April 2021, we started to cage the tiger. Mm-hmm. The vaccines are extraordinarily effective. They do basically take your risk of death and severe disease way down, And turn the virus into its wimpier cousin, which is a cold or a mild flu. Three of my patients have breakthrough infections right now, but they're not that sick. Mm -hmm. So the point is that it's appropriate, as we do in medicine and public health in general, to pivot the messaging to the public on on how we're going to move forward as we contain a virus like, like we are. Now, you know, this is a regional epidemic. So there are places in this country that are surging, but there are places where the virus is, 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 is not surging and where people are vaccinated and the risk of getting COVID is much less. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rambling too now, but let me just say that there are real harms of a hyper focus on COVID risk reduction in the public space and also in our personal lives that's not to say we shouldn't care about Covid, but it is to right. say that once we have been vaccinated and we have taken the claws and the fangs away from the virus, we as individuals can start to and i hope we are and I'm doing this with my patients open our eyes to the other threats that are part of our everyday life, like well, social isolation, you know our relationship to food i mean these are the things that people are struggling with more than they are with covid right now once they've been vaccinated
0: well this is this is this leads this a great lead into my other question about um you know this sort of zero risk and this continued measures. I mean, I myself have put off certain doctor's appointments because I just – you know, there's, I don't want to go in or I'm, I'm worried or, you know, am I sort of monitoring my own health? And I know for sure we have data on this that people have, you know, had to put off cancer treatments or have had to or haven't haven't gone to the doctor so they, their cancer hasn't been detected. You must worry about that as well, about um, how this will affect not only your current patients, but just in general, people out there sort of ignoring warning signs or or ignoring sort of their regular checkups? Has that gotten bad or worse? Or are you seeing people starting to pay more attention to their health outside of COVID?
1: I think people have put off their routine medical care, and I think people have really sidelined sort of their everyday health in many ways yeah. out of necessity. I mean, when people, as you know, are trying to manage parenting, caregiving, Oh yeah, um, working, you know, managing chronic illness, caring for elderly parents and children, you know, all of that takes a toll on a body. And as I say to patients all the time, you know, health is more than just the one day a year you see me. It's the 364 days a year you're not in my office. Right, right. So putting off your colonoscopy and mammogram is is not ideal, and many people have done that. And I have one patient who has breast cancer that would have been detected in 2020 had she gone for her mammogram no shame, no blame on her at all. It just was situational. Um, but, but what I'm seeing much more commonly is people just sort of sidelining their regular health habits like sleep, routine, exercise, alcohol. eating, yeah. alcohol intake, like these sort of mundane everyday habits that yeah. you have have gone off the rails for many people. Yes. And that is health too, right? Health yes. isn't just getting your mammogram or checking your cholesterol. It's about how do you feel in your body every day? What's your relationship to food, alcohol, your spouse? I mean, yeah, yeah. there are plenty of marriages that are breaking up. There are plenty of marriages that that are struggling. There are plenty of people who are, you know, having trouble at home domestically. These things are part of our health profile as well. And unfortunately, are not being looked at like, like they should. I'm hopeful. I mean, this is what I hope. And you know covid has covid has really laid bare our vulnerabilities medically yeah. psychologically societally and it does provide if you will an opportunity to look at what it means to be healthy yep. from a societal standpoint and from an individual standpoint and to me it's more than the absence of covid-19 yes it's yes. about having tools and information and a non-judgmental guide hopefully that's not just someone on the internet um, to help you be healthy mentally and physically you know the best you can every day um, because again when we hyper focus on a single pathogen as we have for the last 18 months somewhat out of you know if you focus on a single path that if you focus on a single pathogen like we have for the last 18 months of course out of necessity you run the risk of losing sight of the big picture what is health well let's expand that big picture a little bit more,
0: um, too. And it's funny because I, I feel like this podcast originally was supposed to be sort of looking at, because the whole point is tailoring your, your parenting to what best fits you. So you have a lot of parenting experts out there saying this is how you do it. And and it's not just parenting experts who seem to get that parenting comes in all different shapes and sizes, but it's more the sort of, um, mommy blogger set or the, the, and a lot of entertainment uh, you know, figures will say, "Oh, you know, this is how you should do. It. This is how you should feed your children." And you know, it's you know, I always laugh at the bento box mommy who makes those lunches oh, in the morning. You know, that and was I was never the bento box. Oh, but I will tell you, the parodies are hilarious on the so I love I thank God for the bento box mommy because she sort of birthed all these parodies on on her. So, <laughs> but I but I but I will say, you know, um, you know, I originally I wanted this po- podcast to you know focus on for instance, um, parenting while you're, you know, dealing with illness, Uh, you know, divorced parents, how do they deal with, you know, the sort of transfer of the kids or whatever, or, or, you know, working moms versus stay at home moms or homeschoolers versus so, um, but then COVID hit. And it's been, it's basically been a lot of COVID, as you can imagine. And frankly, I was fine with that, because that's really what I wanted to talk about. And I, I think a lot of people wanted to hear about. But I do. And so I'm trying to get back to the original um, reason I have this podcast and and talk about different forms of parenting and and different styles. But I do think it's uh, since, you know, you're such an authority on this stuff and you've written about COVID and I know you have a newsletter, which I want you to talk about as well. But, you know, your article, your article and going back to the Atlantic article that I mentioned, let me find the title here. Fear of uh, COVID-19, COVID-19 in kids is getting ahead of the data. I really, really, really uh, can't say uh, firmly enough, how you should Google that, find it on the Atlantic. I don't think it's behind a paywall. I I I read it again today, um, and and read it because it is thick with data and reassuring facts. And I just I just uh, Dr. McGrath, I just want to take a moment. To say, you know, you say uh, Delta is not more lethal than prior variants. It is it it is more contagious, um, but right. also good news. It doesn't seem to target kids, similar to the other variants. It's not like it, you know has a laser eye for for kids. You reminded Correct. people that, of course, it's going to look grim when it seems like suddenly kids are getting or more kids are getting infected. But you make the important point. You got to remember it's because more adults are getting vaccinated. So it only leaves this pool. You think of the, the pool of people left for this disease. It's hopping around looking for a happy host. It's, of course, going to, you know, have more kids because th- that can get sick because more adults are getting vaccinated. Because, again, you've never said that it, it may not target kids, but it- kids can still get infected. Um, you cite a report by the American Academy of Pediatrics that shows that 0.9 percent of COVID-19 cases in children have resulted in hospitalizations. You know, again, uh, you know, Dr. McBride, I have to say, like, you see that and you're like, oh, wow, that. You know, you can exhale, and you say a slight increase since this—that's sp- a slight in- increase since the spring—but well be- below the corresponding percentages um, for, of most last year. And then you say 0.1 percent of infections have resulted in death. This is among children. So, you know, so okay, I'm 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 reading that, I'm feeling great. And then you know, and then I turn my news on, and despite this, or I send my kid off to school, and despite all this good news, there's tons of of panic parents, and many of those panic parents are still agitating for almost daily testing in the schools that's at least happening in my community um and masks constant mask wearing kids. So I'd like to get now I get like, you know, I had mentioned to you that I had interviewed in in our before we went on on air, I had mentioned to you that I had interviewed Emily Oster, who has been very vocal on school openings and tends to agree with CDC on mask guidelines. And I know people are kind of torn on that. Because I think, you know, in Emily's view, it's like, hey, anything to get the schools open. But I'd like to get your opinion on the mask situation.
1: Sure. So let's start at the top with the data you cited in my article, which, by the way, you know, is evolving, right? That, that article was written in August. August. Yes. yes. But still the case. But still is true that the Delta variant has not been shown to be more lethal in children. It is infecting more children
0: Yes.
1: because kids are the ones who are not vaccinated. It right. also does account for the kids account for a larger share because more adults are being vaccinated. You also read the headlines that are terrifying. So both things can be true, right? You can have a statistic that shows that on average, children are relatively low risk for severe outcomes from COVID. And you can have kids tragically, horrifically dying in ICUs in our country. Yes. The, you can, so we can hold paradox, right? We can understand and we can empathize with those families, that there is death and destruction, we can also understand that, in general, our risk in our, for our children is is relatively low. And that is not to dismiss the very real lived experiences of families who are struggling with COVID-19, or God forbid, have lost a child. Right. Um, the thing is that, um, so so okay. So, in general, we know that kids don't get terribly sick from COVID-19 if they get it at all. Um, But that's cold comfort, of course, if you've lost a child. Right. One of of the things that I'm seeing is that, and I I witness this all the time in my patients who are parents, particularly of young kids age 5 to 11, is that the constant drumbeat of panic and fear-based messaging is causing people to have a lowered risk tolerance than they did pre-pandemic, when they would send their kids to school, like you and I did, During flu season, during during RSV season, it is not to say that it's okay that kids are dying from RSV or the flu. It's not to say that the flu and COVID and RSV are the same thing. They're not. What I'm saying is that the the public space is filled with panic-inducing narratives, some of which is based in reality, of course, because there's awful tragedies happening, but that is, in my opinion, out of proportion to what the facts show, and that trigger people's Anxiety that is already in a forest fire because of the situation we're in. When we are feeling out of control and uncertain, and when there's a ubiquitous threat to our children, the most precious animals on the planet, it's normal to feel fearful. But the problem is that fear begets fear when the media, which of course I respect in many ways, of course, is stoking that fear. And I don't think it's malicious in every case. I really don't No, Yeah. I think that I I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't, don't
0: I think, you know, I, I think, I think media is like a normal person in many cases. They don't have a medical degree either. So they're like me, you know, they're sort of, uh,
1: that's right. That's right. I mean, so, so I don't think it's malicious. I don't think necessarily people have malintent, but I do think, you know, just like you read about plane crashes, you know, yes, and you might get anxious about flying. Yeah. You know, like we we, we we are watching this terrible situation play out, but we also need to realize what the facts are. Well, it's, that's it's really a- how I help my patients. What, I, what it's really how, how I help my patients one at a time is by, you know, bringing the facts into the room and understanding, you know, how to calibrate our worry, which you're entitled to, of course to your particular situation because we all are different we all have different risk factors we all have different vulnerabilities well it's interesting that you use
0: the airplane because you know the airplane analogy because you know my i remember i used to we used to travel a lot when i was little and my dad would always say you know julie there's only like you know my dad was mr data nerd and he would always be like um you know julie there's only you know 0.4 airplane crashes a year or something, he'd say something. And, and I was never comforted by that. And to this day, I'm not comforted by that because you know what, you're going to say, it's just like that 0.01% of infections have resulted in death. You're going to be like, that's going to be my kid. And I'm going to be on that airplane. Right. You can always make sure. it.
1: You can no, always, wa- you can always make that. Yes. And, and one of the ways we help people The one of the ways I help people and, and doctors hopefully help people manage this sort of unbridled fear, which, again, is often rooted in reality, is by recognizing the things that in our environment may be triggering that fear. Uncertainty, the unknown, you know, constant deluge of messages from people who may not have expertise um, in that particular area, you know. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm not being very eloquent because it's, it's the end of the day, but but one of yeah. the ways we help people manage anxiety is by helping identify what the triggers are and identifying that, you know, the fact like naming the fact that we are in a very unique time where people feel uncertain and anxious. And so if you you can name that and understand it. Do you think, but, but back to the mask issue,
0: do you think that, do you think it is this, this sort of, And I get, you know, the irrational fear, but also rooted in truth and rooted in facts. Like, but do you think, I mean, we know, look, and, you know, I don't, I want to talk to you about your expertise in the medical field. And I don't want to make this a sort of political conversation, but we know there have been political influences on this masking stuff. We do know this. there are emails.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I like I'm, your opinion. Like, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. I but I I want to know, like, you know, uh, what frustrates me is we talk about masking and masking. Fine, get the schools open, but there are tremendous downsides to masking, including to special needs kids, which uh, which yeah. talk about the demographic that's totally ignored in this country, right? And you know, and kids who f- might face abuse at home and homeless kids and LGBT kids and other kids that are really struggling who might not have sort of you know, good, strong foundations at home, you know, so, and, and again, the kids who really struggle educationally, special needs kids. And so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about like your position on masks in terms of, I get why parents might be wanting them, but, but what's your opinion? Do you think that's the right thing to do to mask kids, you know, eight hours a
1: day, especially like, especially so I like think, little kids? So I think that, that masking, as you just said, has become a hot button and politicized yes. issue. It's become on the one hand, this, this sort of symbol of Trying to control the uncontrollable,
0: yeah. And then
1: the other side it's become this symbol of, you know, do not try to con, do not try to control me with with something that doesn't have scientific backing. There's 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 nuance all around, right? We have we have some pretty good studies to show that masks, not surprisingly, if they're good quality, right. can reduce transmission. But of course, it depends entirely on the environment we're in. So a mask might work and probably would. It makes intuitive sense. If you are in a room full of unvaccinated COVID positive coughing people, right, right? you're going to get a better benefit out of that mask than if you're in a classroom where every person is vaccinated and there's good ventilation yeah. and people are um, have been you know, careful. So my point is that this, the, the, the efficacy of masks is on a broad continuum. The mistake we're making in the public square is to think of masks as this magic wand that is going to make the risk go away or think that there's no role for it. We also right. need to balance the harms against the benefits. As you just said, for certain kids, particularly kids who are disabled, kids who have social anxiety. And for many kids, it is, it is, you know, the harms of masks are are real. Um, I mean, I I can't, I mean, I think for most kids, like, you know, even the kids who say that I don't mind masking, I mean, I would imagine they're, how do I say this? Even kids who are quote unquote pandemic proof and seem not to mind masking, I think would I would imagine, and this is, an, this is an assumption, would rather not think that the air they breathe is potentially dangerous. Now, that's right. hard to study because that right. is a hypothetical and a subjective concept. My right. point is that we cannot mask forever. We need to understand that masks are one small intervention and certainly compared to vaccines are know, pale in comparison to the efficacy, Um, and that at some point we need to have off-ramps. Yeah. And what would be really nice is for public health institutions and experts in the medical space would be able to come together and articulate clear goalposts and endpoints. For example, if we got to a place where, like in June, July, 2020, 2021, where we had case rates in the 20 per hundred thousand range which is relatively low could you then in a school that was mostly vaccinated take masks away i would argue yes i mean you could make the argument to take masks off right now basically it comes down to a societal risk tolerance and then a personal risk tolerance and at some point we have to decide that risk is everywhere we're going to face risks whether we mask or not right which which risk is worse
0: Well, I think I also do, uh, to be honest with you, I worry a little bit about the next generation of kids who, you know, for instance, my 12-year-old, and I really really can't stand on Twitter when people go, when my 12-year-old said, oh, why is that man so bad? Like, I'm not about to do one of those things. But my 12-year-old has asked, why do I have to wear a mask when I'm vaccinated? You know, and having that conversation right. with him, I'm like, well, because Governor Northam wants you to, right? And that's essentially, that's what I do. I say the, the Virginia governor has has mandated, I have no other answer for you. But I do wonder right. because, you know, and I told you, I've told you, and I know you are, you know, are obviously two very pro-vaccine people, but I wonder about, you know, you you, you have a ch- child, they get a shot, they might have some chills and feel sick for two days. And then after that, they still have to put a mask on. Not a great lesson, right? Not a great lesson when you compare that's right. that well, to- you know, you compare that to the 50s where people were lining up to get their polio vaccines and other vaccines and then like they went back to normal life, you know. So I, it, I, I do wonder about that, how that will affect this generation of kids. You know, will they sort of say, What's yeah, the I mean, point?
1: you know. Yeah. What's the point? And also, you know, we had these on ramps of all these restrictions. What about the off ramps? Yeah, And I think yep. we all had some, some emotional whiplash when the CDC went from saying vaccinated people can unmask back in. May to think vaccinated people need to mask again because of some data from this Provincetown outbreak that turned out to be a really great environment that was like the stress (laughs) test for vaccines. And so, you know, unfortunately, there's been an erosion of trust in public health institutions. There's an erosion of trust in medical providers. Um, And so, you know, as I said in the very beginning, you know, trust is the glue in any relationship, particularly in healthcare. And one of the ways we inspire trust in patients and the general public is by making clear what our goals are. Once you've been vaccinated, the chances of dying or go to the hospital from COVID-19 are very, very slim. And if you're a child, if you're a 12 year old, your chance was already very low. And so once you've been vaccinated, it really, really goes down. And your chance of transmitting the virus, if you're not sick, so an asymptomatic person who's been vaccinated, the chance of that person transmitting to another person. Of course it can happen. It can't. It absolutely can't happen. But it's very unlikely. At some point we need to decide what is the societal risk we're willing to take, say within a school system or within a state, of getting COVID, which is going to be a cold or mild flu in most children, and what are the benefits of unmasking. And at some point, and I think we're getting close, we will decide, I hope, that masks, have more harm than benefit.
0: You know, this is a great way to segue into this new Pfizer vaccine that has come out um, uh, that Pfizer is talking about. It will be, it's been approved by the FDA for use for five to eleven year olds, um, and so, you know, again, I think we have a situation where you know a parent's really nervous. They go to the Atlantic, they read your article, which I know you've said, you know, okay, there's a little bit of updating to do, but in general, that article still still is, you know, it holds up, right? And 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 that you know it it hasn't changed in terms of the Delta variants. Um, you know, it's it's very contagious, but it you know it doesn't affect it doesn't target children blah, blah 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 you know I don't want to repeat everything I said earlier but the point is it's just like masking now parents have to think about this new covid vaccine and you know look i i think you know i talked to i talked to uh, Dr. Paul Offit and i remember him saying look vaccine skepticism is okay it's okay to be skeptical right and I, yeah. I i i keep coming back to that now because you know look let's let's face it you know people have been kind of um shamed for being Vaccine skeptical with this new vaccine, right? So you can't ask any questions, or you know you're shamed if you if you hesitate at all, and 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 certainly that's not true for you. But I'm saying, and not true for Dr. Paul that he welcomes questions. He thinks you should be curious and do research. But um, but so I worry about this how parents are going to react. Look, I I I'm interested in this new vaccine. I think it's great if it adds freedom to people's lives. But I think you tell a person to give your five to seven year old a vaccine and they're going to go right back to school with a mask. What is the point? It's sort of the same question I'm asking you. I I'm kind of interested in your opinion on this new vaccine um, and, and your thoughts on it and more sort of practically, what should parents, if you were, to, if a parent, you know, what, what should parents be asking their pediatricians about this new vaccine? So it's a great question.
1: So it is about to be, I think, so this so the let me just be clear the the Pfizer vaccine is the same vaccine that has That's been right, administered yeah. to now billions of people across the globe. Um, it's a smaller dose that should be, I would imagine, approved for emergency use by the FDA next month for oh, January, I was, ages five oh, to thank, eleven. Thank you for correcting me. that. I was wrong. I
0: thought it had already been approved, but you. Yes. It's okay. Pfizer has,
1: pre- Pfizer has presented the Pfizer has presented the data to the FDA, and we've we've seen Pfizer's press release. We have not seen approval by the FDA. Okay. But assuming Pfizer isn't making up their data, which I can't imagine they are, but you know you never know. <laughs> assuming <laughs> Pfizer yeah. is presenting their data appropriately, um, and again, this was a study of I think it was 2,200 kids. A third of them yes. were given the placebo, and the other two thirds were given the actual shot the safety profile looks great. They couldn't do a a study on efficacy because kids don't get that sick from COVID. And so they didn't get enough sickness to know that it worked for um, protecting people from disease in a robust way, because there were just not that many kids they studied. But the main thing we care about in vaccines for children, particularly for a virus that generally doesn't cause severe outcomes, is the safety profile. And so far, it has cleared that hurdle, but in a small cohort of children. Um, I think you're right that vaccine. So I think you're right. Questions about vaccines is not synonymous with anti-vax. Right. In fact, I have been able to convince many of my adult patients to get vaccinated because they asked questions and I listened and I answered them. If I said, come on, you've (laughs) got to be kidding me. That is anti-science ridiculousness, what's your problem, get vaccinated, they would run for the hills and not get it. I mean, let's just face it, the the health of any relationship hinges on listening. Um, So (laughs) there's just no role for telling a parent who has a question about a brand new vaccine, You know, what's your problem, you anti-science monster. I mean, that is just the ticket to nowhere. So moreover, the questions are really good. I mean, that's what a trial is for. It's asking a question. This is science asking a question of a vaccine. So it's appropriate for the consumer to also ask a question. Um, I think we're in a trust desert in the United States. And so that's only fanning the flames of mistrust. So we need to make sure that we are clear, that we, as as medical professionals, and that we answer people's questions appropriately. And the truth is, we don't, the truth is, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions. When you have a child who is, as you said, five years old, who's generally healthy, who has no underlying health conditions that would put that child at higher risk for poor outcomes from covid. I can understand why you would want to have a shared decision-making conversation with your pediatrician about whether or not to vaccinate. Two reasons. One, if your child is going to go back to the classroom masked, you might think what's the point? Okay. And two, we have to we have to recognize that there are risks with everything we do. I am going to guess, and this is a guess, that the vaccine is going to be shown to be, you know, not only effective against disease but also quite safe particularly at these lower doses for kiddos but i don't know that it hasn't been studied enough um so as as i as you said in the outset i am pro-vax i would get vaccinated every day with a new vaccine if i could (laughs) right i I, I shouldn't say that i shouldn't say that i am (laughs) pro-vax i am a believer in these vaccines i get every vaccine that is that i'm eligible for yep um but i think we also need to i think it's also fair to ask questions um, I think one of the things that we need to do better at is risk stratifying. So there are kids in ICUs, there are kids in hospitals right now with COVID-19. We need to know who are those kids, what put them at higher risk. Yep. I mean, we, we think we know it's kids who have, have obesity, who have cardiac abnormalities, who have diabetes. And, and yeah. by the way, saying that most of those kids who are in the hospital have underlying health conditions is not dismissing of kids with underlying health health. Of course, it's not dismissive of underlying health conditions. It's just that's the facts. But we need to understand that in medicine, there's no kind of one size fits all recommendation for every person.
0: Yeah.
1: So I would get my child vaccinated with the vaccine for children if, um, for example, he or she was at higher risk for poor outcomes. Right. But I probably would get them vaccinated regardless. I just would want to see that data. And I'm just Not envious of people who have to make that decision.
0: And I I think it really is important for parents to, you know, just like this podcast, Bespoke Parenting, like make the decision that's best for your child. If you have a child that suffers from diabetes or has a heart uh, problems or kidney problems or, you know, um, suffers from some sort of disease unrelated to, you know, obviously to COVID, then you might, this is something that might save their life. So, you know, again, you need to look at your child and, you know, look at, at, at their own health, at their health and, and make that decision. Um, you know, I, do you think, and this is, this is purely you guessing, but like, because there's no indication so far, but I have seen, especially like on Twitter and some, some sort of medical people saying, um, you know, get your, get your kid, get your, you know, seven-year-old this, um, this vaccine so they can go back, to, um, to a normal life, right? And I thought, wow, you know, and, and they said, and I've seen other people say, like, you know, play sports, or, you know, um, you know, go to do go to classroom uh, field trips. And I thought, I wonder if this is going to be made mandatory. Do you think that will happen so far? There haven't been any mandatory, you know, you don't have to get your 12 year old a man, uh, a vaccine, you don't have to give your get your teenager a vaccine to attend high school. But do you see this as being part of the vaccines? Like, you know, every, you know, at school, you have to turn in a vaccine sheet every year. Do you think this will be sort of one of those mandatory vaccines that will be added?
1: You know, I don't know. I think it's going to be a hard sell on an emergency use authorization. Yeah. Um, I think it will be a hard sell. But I think, as you said, so I so I don't know. That's a really, a, it's a really a political question. Yeah, um, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, You know, the vaccine mandates have worked in many ways for adults, um, but I wish we hadn't had to go there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. But we also have a very heterogeneous population and we needed to get people vaccinated to be able to contain the virus, to be able to open up life. Um, For kids, there's a little bit of a different calculation because... The risk for the average child is relatively is low. Very for low. Outcomes. Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, that's, and so that, the
1: the, yeah. the the question the question so the the going back to normal is just an interesting question <laughs> for kids because you know it depends on where you live, it depends on your school, it depends on the child their age. Itself. I
0: mean, for some of them, this is normal, right? You know, you yeah.
1: relative to right. their age. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is what am I trying to say? Um, I'm trying to say that, oh my gosh, my brain is just like it, mashed potatoes. Just, I get it. And I, let me, let me guide you. I think,
0: I think that, you know, what you're saying it it could, but there, there is complications unlike measles, which is a, you know, it, it it'll it affect anyone. It's just promiscuous, right? It'll just, you know, whereas this one it doesn't affect kids. And that's what that is, what the complication is going to be for parents. And look, let's not forget, there were some complications. There were some heart issues um, with young kids. I mean, th- it was very I mean, I think that I you know, I think the FDA eventually ruled that it wasn't significant enough numbers to, you know, for it, you know, to stop vaccinating 12 year olds. But still, parents kind of think about that stuff and worry about that stuff. And again, you know, as someone well, who's like, us- go on, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going
1: to say, there, so, there, so there, is a, there is a real, albeit tiny, safety signal this risk of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, in yes. teenage boys and young adult boys. Now, the risk of COVID is probably bigger than the risk of the vaccine sure. in teenage boys and young men but we still need to understand that safety signal and ultimately risk stratify kids and maybe think about dosing for teenage kids. Yeah. But that does get the attention of parents of kids who are younger than that because we don't know why myocarditis, even though it's really rare and COVID itself causes myocarditis um, or can do, we don't know why it affects boys more than girls. And so it's appropriate for people to have questions. um, But, the problem is that a lot of people don't trust any medical experts such that they are, quote, doing their own research. And that involves a lot of Googling and misinformation. So, you know, I don't have a good answer for you on whether you should vaccinate your five to 11 year old child. Yeah. If I had a five year old to 11 year old child, I probably would because I believe in the vaccines. And yeah. I believe that staying in school and not having even a cold um, in the new landscape we live in is going to be better for their ability to be in school, for their social, emotional health, and for their learning. And I, because I believe the risk of the vaccines is low. But I yeah. also would think twice maybe about getting dose two, or maybe I would want to space the second dose out more than three weeks, because just because that's the cookbook doesn't mean that has to be done that way. But this right. ultimately be a shared decision making between a pediatrician and parents. And I think that's key. I mean, I think my advice
0: on this podcast is always, you know, you know, if you're, if you're listening, if you're getting your medical advice from me, you're going to die. Um, and so you should, con- you can- should consult a, a a actual doctor and, and, and you should, you know, hopefully you have a regular pediatrician for your children because they know your children. Um, and I, so I do think that's good advice. And I just, I do think it's, it's, it's nice to hear a doctor uh, agree that these are complex issues and not dismiss fears or skepticism or concerns. And I think that alone, at least, you know, look, I'm speaking here as a parent of kids that are kind of, I have an 11 year old and I have 12 and i have 14. So I'm in that, that spot where it's all, it's very worrying to me. And it is, um, it is, it, it's nice to hear that. Hey, look, these questions are good questions, and these are well, things people are curious about. So that alone helps. I mean, ultimately, you
1: know? ultimately, medicine and in and our in our, our training is about critical thinking. It's not about dismissing new research. It's about inviting it and studying it and learning from it. Um, so, you know, it would be very easy for me to say, "Look, the cookbook of Pfizer says get your kid vaccinated." three weeks apart, these two doses, don't worry about the reports of myocarditis, just do it because that's what we're supposed to do so that you can get back in school because ultimately, you know, that's the way you should do it. But, And it would be easy for you to say every American should be boosted after six months, but there's so much more nuance. That's why my job right. seeing patients one at a time is so much easier than messaging to a wider public because ultimately we are as different as human beings, as stars are in the sky. That said, public health entities have to give broad recommendations. They have to draw lines in the sand. Um, but they also, in my opinion, have an obligation to be clear and transparent about the unknowns. People are dealing with so much unknown, so much uncertainty. We look to these institutions like never before. I mean, when before in your life did you look to the CDC right. um, for you know day-to-day advice, right? Right. Right but now, right. And, 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 I, and I really don't blame them. I, I mean, I respect Rochelle Walensky. I think she's doing the best she can, given that this government agency was asked to basically, you know, mandate or, or, or sort of this government agency was asked to take on much more responsibility than they were equipped to take on. And then the public is confused, anxious, getting mixed messages. And then, you know, misinformation is just rampant. So it's not well, surprising that, that people are confused. And I think this is where we need trusted guides more than ever. This is where I think primary care, which to me I'm a little biased, is like the jewel in the crown of healthcare, where people can, you know, have this hub for problem solving needs to be elevated in healthcare reform, which is a different podcast for a different day. But different my point show. is that there's no substitute there's no substitute for a dialogue about emerging evidence. Marrying broad public health advice with your unique situation, your child, your living situation, your goals, your hopes, your fears—those are that's health. And that is
0: bespoke health. That is making it the, the right, making the right decisions for you and your family. And that is a perfect way to, to, to bring this to an end. I want you to know I have about 700 more questions, but I I know, I, uh, I know. I, there's so many I, more questions. I know I know and it's been really fun talking to you mostly that that's why I actually just want to keep picking your brain because it is really fun talking to you and I I want to say one thing as I'm closing out here you know it, it has been kind of shocking to me to learn and I, I I you know I'm not I'm not here to I'm not going to bash the CDC but it really is astonishing to me that you have people like yourself and Emily Oster you know Emily Oster did a lot of work um tracking you know the the outbreaks in schools I mean and a part of me is like Shouldn't the CDC be, shouldn't the Department of Education be doing that? It's just amazing to me. You know, she's doing it, yeah. I,
1: I, I think she's doing it in her basement, you know, and, and she has probably yeah. some people no, helping her. And she and I have done some live conversations on social media where she's <laughs> in her in-law's bathroom. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I am in touch with the, one of the silver linings for me of the pandemic has been the ongoing conversations daily with this group of women, medicine, uh, like women doctors and public health epidemiology Mm -hmm. experts who are basically citizen scientists who are really, really digging into the data. And I've learned so much from them. I think we learn from each other. Um, Yeah. So it's a tall order for the CDC to handle a global pandemic, but, you're right. Well, I mean, it,
0: I mean, look, it is. And I'm not, you know, again, I, I'm putting my libertarian hat on here. They have lots of money. Um, but I but I do have I look, I have sympathy for for folks in public health and, and thanks to them and and you know, the private innovation that went into the vaccine. I am, I am just absolutely so grateful for the work that, you know, that scientists and the medical profession has done to bring this, these great vaccines. And, and I, but I do think it's important that people realize there's a lot of individuals out there like Dr. McBride, like Emily Oster, like you mentioned this group of sort of citizen scientists working on their own time, right. To, to help, um, you know, to to help find solutions to these really difficult, naughty issues, and um and so I am really grateful, um for all that you've done, and you and and the reassurance that you've given so many parents. I know that a lot of people were talking. Just so you know, a lot of people in my circles are talking about your Atlantic article. You really are making a huge difference. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, we hope to have you on again soon. And honestly, it has been a fun I love conversation. It. There's
1: so many other questions. There's so many like it just a scratch scratches the surface. <laughs> um there's okay. so many things. And part of me wants to ask you, do you ever do writing for other people?
0: I do. I do. I, I'm I it's sort of like I'm freelance, so I write for a, a bunch of different um different publications. But before before we sign off on this podcast, I do want to make sure that people know about your stuff. Everybody knows about my stuff. Oh yes, YouTube, please.
1: Thank you. But thank you. I do oh, yeah, I you.
0: I want so, yeah. I want you to give your Twitter handle, but also you have a newsletter and then tell them anything else where else you write.
1: Okay. So my Twitter handle is... Doc, uh, what is my Twitter handle? Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think my Twitter is... Doc, uh, I think my Twitter is at DrLucyMcBride. I'll, I'll confirm um, that while you're talking. I am in a little love-hate relationship with Twitter, as many people are. <laughs> yes. I mean, after that Atlantic article came out, I got so much great feedback, but you also get hey, really, sure. really hostile messages. Yes. Because yes. somehow trying to reassure people and provide you know, empathy and compassion was confused by a lot of people as dismissive of people's lived experience, which is exactly yeah. the opposite of what I'm trying to do. So anyway, um, but anyway, so, so I've, been writing a, I've been writing a newsletter since March 2020 about COVID-19, and it's basically trying to cut through the noise of all the news and to help people with real-time fact-based information and guidance to manage mental and physical health in tandem. It is a little bit of dumb humor. It is a little bit of anecdote. <laughs> it's a little bit about me, but it's also just trying to to kind of drill down into these bigger issues and help people frame complex decisions without me telling you what to do. Because ultimately, even if you're my patient, I'm not telling you what to do, you know, lecturing you or looking down my nose. I'm helping you think through the issue so you can make a healthy decision for yourself. And that's what I'm trying to do in my newsletter. And it's been super fun. Well, listen, I'm going to confirm you. You are at, you
0: are at, at Dr. W- my Dr. Is,
1: I think you're wrong. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing Twitter? a your Twitter?
0: Yeah, you're at, at uh,
1: It's at
0: L-U-C-Y McBride, M-C-B-R-I-D-E. So it's Dr. Lucy L. U. C. Y. McBride M. C. B. R. I. D. E. So it's Doctor Lucy McBride.
1: Doctor Lucy McBride. Yes, yes. And then so, my <laughs> website is where you can find my my website is where you can find my newsletter. It's www.LucyMcBride.com. com. You can see past newsletters. You can sign up to get your the newsletter in your inbox. You can also read my Atlantic articles. I've written a couple of pieces for the Washington post and CNN. Um, And really it's just volunteer passion for trying to cut through the noise. I mean, you know, as you know, you don't get paid for these things. It's just for fun. I mean, well, I don't want to say for fun. because Well, look, I'm telling people
0: on this podcast and, and, you know, I, I know there are regular listeners. This is who you want to follow on Twitter this is who you want to read. You want to us and look, you know, I don't agree with you know I, I mentioned Emily a couple of times. I don't agree with everything Emily um sure. you know, tweets about or says about, but she is so rational and so kind and so compassionate, so interested and curious, intellectually interested in talking about things. You know, like it, it was, you know, the, the you know, certain and she's always, you know, she's she said on Twitter, like, oh, I get and just like you, you know, oh god, Twitter, you didn't get beat up for something. You, know, I don't like that, you know. And um, and yeah. who does? But but the point is is that there's just a wealth of information um from these people who are not really attached to you know a federal agency and and haven't haven't, this is the most important thing, made things political. They are truly searching um for the truth. They they are, and they're doing this really because they're interested in it. So I think those are great sources. And that's part of part of what I see is my job as a you know a non-expert and a non Uh, you know, a non-medical official and non-scientist, but I I like to share who who has helped me as a parent make good decisions. And Lucy, you definitely have. And I, I, I just have, I've enjoyed this podcast so much. I, I do podcasting, you know, a lot. And this is, this is honestly one of my favorite conversations. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: I've been delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.